Hello and welcome back to the Hulkcast. Um, this week I am releasing an extra, uh, an extra issue, an extra episode, due to the fact that something quite concerning happened in Villa's last match. We spoke about it at length, me and Danny, and no doubt you've heard a lot of takes on it from various newspapers. And the issue itself is kind of um, closed off now with the sentencing of the the perpetrator who was sentenced to a 14-week sentence for attacking Jack Grealish in the second City derby. So I'm James Rushton and today I'm joined by John McKenzie, a friend of the podcast, and I wanted to talk to him about some of the takes people have had, um, some of the quite intelligent takes people have had, that delve quite deep into, I guess, societal issues, John? Mm, yeah, there's been lots of interesting uh, ideas floating around and there's there's obviously a huge amount of interesting ideas percolating just beneath the, beneath the surface of a lot of the discourse in football and in football itself at the moment. So I think as a result of that, there's quite a lot to unpack, like you say. The, what I wanted to get into really is the first thing I saw was Jonathan Wilson posted a piece on Sports Illustrator and he kind of went into this. I think the direct point of the piece was this is caused by, in no other terms, austerity, hmm. I think. Yeah, um, and that was the that was the angle that John Nicholson took as well in his football three six five piece. Um, I don't think you know I have a huge amount of time for these sorts of arguments. Uh, I wrote a, a short bit in in my newsletter which came out this morning about it, just because it'd been something that had been it was sort of stemmed by the the ideas that I've been thinking about with respect to social media and the way that a lot of football journalists have started talking about things like tribalism in when it comes to football um uh when it comes to social media football social media in particular the infamous football twitter and yeah i guess my my thinking is that um in many respects you know um that a lot of these takes are sort of not easy arguments for by way of explanation but they they sort of fall back onto a more fundamental idea about what's going on in the world at the moment, not just in the world of football. Um, and so I think that if you look at someone, someone like Jonathan Wilson um, and then Miguel Delaney uh, again today in The Independent, both of their pieces were very much of the, of the argument that uh, what we're seeing in, 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 on, a, on a global scale in this country or on a, on a national scale in this country is the after effects of, of austerity prompting people into voting a particular way um, in in the Brexit the Brexit uh, referendum and um, all of this can be sort of traced back to as we've said this this austerity and so what we're seeing now is is, is a sort of populist emboldened by um, a a political decision which has allowed people to in some sense come out and and start um, enacting forms of I guess racism forms of discrimination um, and if we want to understand what happened on the pitch at, at St Andrews um, then that's where we should go um, and I think as you said you know these are complex arguments they're arguments that I think deserve to be heard but um, for me I, I just sort of feel with a lot of these arguments and, and other arguments like it so you we, we mentioned before we came on uh, Gillen Balagay Gillen Balagay came out and said um, essentially oh well you know if if the sorts of uh, discrimination and 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 uh, I guess downright hatred that occur on social media uh, are being proliferated on on sites such as Twitter. Then we shouldn't be surprised when things like this happen in real life as well. So, a lot of these uh, sports guys, uh, sports writers, uh, are really trying to argue that something 
um, beneath the, the surface here is sort of bubbled over into into reality. So, um, I, I mean, whether or not you want to talk about those ideas further now, I don't know. But um, I, I did voice some concerns in my newsletter this morning about the way that some of the logic seemed to be working in the um, in in those in those uh, articles. I think it's interesting that you mentioned tribalism because it's certainly there. And I think Daniel's story has um, spoke at length about these things. It's almost every other piece he makes now where he's kind of attacking the mutated tribalism of football that we see. And I think our friend Tiago, in some of the stuff he's wrote about Manchester United, he'll get attacked for writing uh, his analysis on Manchester United. When he does anything else about Liverpool, he get attacked by Liverpool fans. So there's no kind of escape route for the neutral kind of observer who's on football Twitter now because there is these definite distinct tribes from people all over the world now. It's just connecting through Twitter with their football clubs and you can be mm. anyone and you can put David De Gea as your profile picture, call yourself whatever and kind of manifest these takes. And part of me wants to believe that what we saw yesterday with a bloke running a 27 year old bloke running onto a pitch and hitting Jack Grealish um, for quote unquote a joke. Is that kind of the end game here with this sort of stuff? If we kind of manifest this hatred of certain footballers and, you know, Jack Grealish has been on the end for five or so years of homophobic banter, jokes about his like his um, deceased infant brother, stuff like that. Does that manifest finally as an end game in physical violence? Yeah. I think there's a, there's a lot of interesting angles and avenues we could take through those through those things that you've thrown up i think the first thing i would say you mentioned daniel's story um and yeah he does he has been writing a lot about uh, tribalism but i wonder you know a lot of the and i just want to get this out of the way because this is the angle that i sort of ended up taking in my in my newsletter piece this morning which was what i think is happening here when it comes to the football media in particular now um i'm not i'm not an expert on social media i'm not an expert on uh internet behaviors through time i don't know what 10 years ago the below the line comments were on i don't know daily mail pieces or even i guess broadsheet uh, online pieces i don't know what what the what the sort of historical development of of abuse online looks like it's clearly worse now than it was it's clearly we're clearly much more aware of it now than um, than we were and i think this is sort of what what um pushed my my reading into a very particular direction because i think a lot of the time we are seeing football journalists who are clearly on a daily basis getting hammered uh, on social media in the ways that you've said so you write a piece about manchester united and you get hammered by their fans you write a piece about manchester city and you get hammered by their fans you get the manchester united fans hammering the manchester city fans for being owned by a um uh a state with with questionable human rights abuses, and then you get Manchester yeah. United fans defending their club in the event that that their club is bought by a similar state. Um, there's clearly there's clearly been some kind of proliferation of of unhealthy behaviours online, and I wouldn't disagree with these guys uh, about that, and I would also not condone any of these sorts of behaviours online. Um, but I do think that what what is happening here too is is a sort of increase of, of exposure to um, particularly mainstream journalists to their readership, um, and that's something which has only happened in the internet age. And uh, I think before, when you have to go to the the, the extents of writing a news uh, a letter to a newspaper to voice any complaints that you might have with them, 
there's, there's clearly not quite the the ease of uh, of access that you have uh, there with that you do now with social media. So I think one of the one of the things that has caused a lot of these journalists to write about things like tribalism is because they're at the receiving receiving end of this tribalism quite a bit. Um, I also think that what's happening there is. Um, is them be- becoming increasingly aware whether or not they know of, of the way that uh, a lot of uh, the general public feel about um, about people writing in in the press, and they just haven't been able to voice it quite so easily before. Um, so that's where that's where I would sort of start with with the, with the notion of uh, of social media. Another another angle that I had in the in the piece that I wrote this morning was a lot of these arguments, these sociological arguments that are being made by people. So we, we, we've already mentioned the Gillan Balagay sort of idea that if you have if you have toxic behaviors on social media, they will, it won't be long before they port over into reality. And then you have um, the arguments for people like uh, John Nicholson from Jonathan Wilson, from Miguel Delaney, which is what we have here is a more sort of widespread um, societal uh, decomposure. You know, we're sort of moving into this age now where people can't respect one another and, uh, and we, we, we're ruined by um, arguments about immigration, which have led us to, um, to, believe certain things about the other i mean gillan balagay used the other in capital you know sort of as though he'd been reading jean-paul sartre all morning um but this this sort of idea that what's going on here is 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 a general fear-mongering um that is now being sort of pushed over through things like brexit brexit arguments and austerity arguments so people uh, feeling disenfranchised because the country that that they live in doesn't support them, and I, I just don't find those sorts of arguments particularly causally um, interesting. And what I mean by that is, I don't. I, I, there comes a point in all of these arguments where I kind of think, yes, I find your arguments about societal decline. Uh, convincing to an extent i do think austerity is a terrible reality um to have have happened upon this country and i think it it brings with it all kinds of um uh historical and material problems um yes i do think that that there's all kinds of things going on beneath the surface surface with brexit arguments there have been terrible um arguments made on the basis of things like immigration and uh, on the basis of, of of not treating our fellow humans as uh, having the same uh, intrinsic meanings as as we do, and these are all terrible things. And I, I as I said in my piece this morning, look, I'm a, I'm a card carrying Marxist when it comes to historiography. I think when you're when you're reading history, what you have to look for is those material conditions underneath the surface that are actually way more important for pushing f- history forward than than say uh, the, the the individual actions of, of, of one person who uh, which is often the way that we do read history so uh, I'm on board with a lot of these things but I, there comes a cause a point where I find the causality just doesn't work I, I don't think that you can say that because um, because social media has certain amounts of uh, toxic environments within it therefore when something toxic happens in reality you can causally link it back and by the same argument i don't think that you can because just because there have been uh, all of these problematic um contexts formed by the 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 hammering of of, of many people in this country through uh through a quite frankly a legal um form of, of austerity in recent years that you can therefore trace that to the the actions of one person on a football pitch um so that's that's my sort of broad position on on, on these whole things it's yes i agree these problems are there social media needs to be um worked out uh, in terms of how do we how do we allow these sorts of things to continue without becoming problematic um 
and without sort of ending up with some kind of Orwellian uh, panopticon where, where we're sort of monitored all the time. Um, yes, I, I think that the way that the country has been dealt with by subsequent governments is terrible, but there comes a point when those sorts of arguments are pushed onto this uh, event on the, on the pitch at St. Andrews. And I, I just want to say this, this far, I shall come and no further. So if that makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense because it's all, it's all kind of speculation because we, we're never going to be in the guy's head and whether he tells the, the truth in court is, you know, it's completely, we, we don't know. We don't know if he's going to say something to kind of, you know, soften his sentence because he doesn't want the harsh one. So who knows what, what happened in court was was real, or whether it's true or not. But he said that he hit Grealish as a joke, and that he wasn't drunk, and that nobody stopped him, and he kind of just did it. So a spur of the moment thing, and he's got fourteen weeks in jail now. Is it acceptable at all for it to be a joke? Is it more acceptable for us to have, you know, can we blame society and blame the government, blame economic factors, or is it worse that it's just kind of a guy on his own? performing this action yeah i think that's an interesting question i think because my my initial response to this sort of thing happening is that obviously this is a terrible thing that's happened but quite simply that you know obviously this is a terrible thing that's happened surely there's going to be absolutely no one condoning that sort of action um which i mean obviously that seems to make sense at the time but then you see all of the the response of the crowd in 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 the game and you sort of think yeah in the heat of the moment in a game these these sorts of things happen that the, the guy gets clapped off the pitch by some fans um and I, I, yeah i i guess the question it comes down to whether or not you think this is endemic or indicative of something that's going to happen on a more widespread basis now. And I think, again, this might be where I disagree with with some of the takes that came out in the mainstream media, because it does it does seem as though the, we're, we're, we're seeing a sort of implied thin end of the wedge argument here. So, so the, the assumption is, and a lot of these, a lot of these sports journalists are sort of saying, well, you know, all of these things are happening uh, below the surface in this, in this country. And now here we are, we see, we see a very clear example of it being sort of worked out in real life. Now, the assumption to me there seems to be, and we will see more and more of this happening um, as time goes on, right? That, that seems to be the, the, the logical conclusion of what, of what they're saying. Um, so I, I guess that, that's how you have to approach the issue of, is this just, an, as you said, is this just an isolated um, act, action? And, and does that, in some sense, make it worse? Um, if we, and I think what you're saying there is, you know, if, if there are sort of causal explanations for a thing, then it then you're explaining it away a little bit. And so it, it sort of lessens the impact of it. Um, that's just me Im- Im- imposing an interpretation of what you've just said. So feel free to correct me. But um, I, I suppose for me, for me, it is just, a, it is just an, uh, it is a, an, an isolated incident, I would say. Um, and uh, there was, I read, I, I, I can't remember who it, who it is now. I should probably, um, I should probably have prepared this, but um, uh, a, essentially a criminal lawyer who does a lot of work on sports saying, let's not get carried away here. Look, the law is sufficient to punish this guy. The law exists to punish this guy. We have these laws precisely in case something like this happens. And there's been no problems with, with the law. And we've seen other people coming out sort of with, with fairly harebrained ideas about arming police and stuff. And again, you don't know how much of that comes down to 
to uh, sort of attempts by by various media to to encourage traffic onto their website but I think that this is an isolated incident. I don't think that means that necessarily it's a bad thing because I think, you know, and again, I should probably have done a little bit more research on this, but I, I, I can clearly remember watching um, replays of, of similar events where players get attacked by by players off the pitch. And so um, it, it sort of, and, and I hate making this sort of argument because I don't want to downplay it. It's something that's terrible and, and it's something that, you know, like I said, it just seems so obviously wrong that it's just, you feel like it shouldn't happen, but I don't think this is going to be the beginning of a, of a series of events like this, um, regardless of what people say about West Ham fans running on the pitch last season, regardless of what people say about is a, the Hibs fan who ran on and confronted his captain in, against Rangers. I think it was at the weekend. Um, I think what you need to what you need to do in these scenarios is sort of sit back and say, well, you know we just don't have it's a terrible thing to say but we just don't have the sample size at the moment for, for us to be able to make any sort of um predictive claims about what's what about what's happened here so funnily enough your man marcello bielsa and um, come out with a similar line of thinking um where he kind of summed up the whole the whole Grealish incident in a few sentences where he said the person who does the thing we saw yesterday so the, the bloke who hit Grealish expresses mm. a series of frustrations which aren't probably linked to football because the more satisfied you are with your personal life the less you you need to do this kind of thing and is that that's probably true because i think if you're frustrated in your life if you've got you know work worries or economic pressures on you that aren't necessarily forced by government it's just it's life in general sometimes you don't get work sometimes you do get work sometimes you have more stress due to family issues are you more you're probably more likely to do this kind of thing and he did go on i don't have the direct quote in front of me but he did go on to say that you know these type of things even though what happened yesterday seems like a flashpoint it is one of a kind and even mm. though someone come on someone ran onto a pitch and confronted chris smalling yesterday on the same day but only one player was hit and we do usually see these type of things happen people run onto the pitches they run across out that the they act the idiot but only one person's been hit and these these incidents as he said are few and far between so we should maybe look at it glass glass half full and be optimistic about it because mm. people have been quite draconian in response to it i think as you as you said and there was there was a comment where i believe it was a former blues player said i don't condone ar- arming the police but if that's the answer then there we go and i think there are certainly like we saw with knife crime it's a completely different thing but you see all sorts of um you know lobbyists on good morning britain saying we need more prisons we need more cameras we need more this and that and it's always kind of like a draconian response where you know police forces and private security are almost legitimized in their their heavy-handed approach to this stuff because you could see uh, a situation now if this happens again next week i can see a situation where we are almost looking at bringing fences back, stuff like that, or we're, we're allowing the police to be more heavy-handed than they already are at football matches. And there will be a swell of support for that now, mm. almost. Yeah, and look, I'm, I'm, I'm leftist, so my solution is always going to be, you know, throwing throwing more and more draconian measures as you've said more and more police at this sort of problem isn't going to solve it because those problems are caused by um these these sort of underlying historical conditions that that prompt people into behaving the way that they do and so often and this is where i find jonathan wilson's argument compelling right so often these sorts of um these sorts of issues are prompted by um uh 
governments failing in their responsibility to to help out the vulnerable people in society to create a society where the people who've been left behind through no uh through no fault of their own um aren't being helped out by that government so i find that sort of argument compelling and i, d- I don't think the solution is <laughs> i mean obviously i don't think it is arming the police i don't think the the, the solution is necessarily even becoming more heavy-handed but at the same time, you know, and again, this is where I keep banging on about causality. Like, what's the causality? Like, what, what sort of, we know nothing about this guy other than he said he came onto the pitch as a, as a, um, as a joke. He was there. He claimed not to be drunk. He said he was there with his father. So, you know, sort of, I guess, uh, broadly um, contextualized as a family day out or whatever. Um And, and for me, uh, the, the, the precise issue is, is this, that we, we, We've been spending the last two decades talking about how the problems of football have been those of, of gentrification, pricing out the people who who were usually the communities or usually the, the the basis of the communities that that visited football stadia of a weekend. Um, and now suddenly we're being told, oh, you know, the problems that we're seeing on a football pitch are the result of austerity or Brexit sentiments. We we, we know nothing about <laughs> about the um, the financial. Um, situation of this guy who ran on the pitch we also know nothing about the for for want of a better word the political allegiances of this man and I just don't again it's where it's where I sort of don't I don't buy this argument that austerity has happened therefore if anyone uh, voices or, or behaves in a way that we see to be problematic then therefore we can just trace it straight back to that um so again, I don't want to say too much about about the fans of of Birmingham City because I don't know enough about them. But and and that's not to say that you know if you can afford to get into a stadium, you you therefore conform to certain um, ideas about class. But at the same time, you know it, it does seem to suggest that the way that people behave in football grounds now, yeah, we still do have problems with racism. We still do have problems with with homophobia. We do have problems with with misogynistic. Um, uh, language and behavior in 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 stands but whether or not we're sort of returning back to, to to that that sort of 70s and 80s hooliganism that that we saw um back then i just don't think that's the case and and so and, and i think those those sorts of issues were actually traceable to to these material conditions that all of the all of the underplayings of what was going on with the Thatcher's government and the, and the and the hammering of the unions etc cetera, etc cetera, those things were happening and those were the people who were being disenfranchised the disenfranchisement that we have now and I'm not saying that we don't have it anymore we certainly do people do feel disenfranchised but more often than not that disenfranchisement is not uh economic in in many respects it's, it reminds me of the of the the sort of Jack, Jack Pitbrook, when was this? Probably in October last year, wrote a piece about uh, England played someone. I forget who. I don't follow England, so um, it's not in it's not in my uh, in the forefront of my mind. But they played someone. It maybe oh, I can't remember. Um, but there there was people in the crowd singing "Fuck the Pope" or something like that. And he wrote this piece. Uh, I don't know if you remember the piece, but the piece was the, the piece was sort of we should just stamp stamp out on racism entirely. You know, there's, there's, we live in a, in a time where where racism shouldn't be an issue, and we should come down hard on these fans, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I, I remember at the time I, I came out and said, you know, again, again, I take sort of, you know, you have to think, you have to think through the the sort of material conditions that are, are operating behind the scenes, and that always gets interpreted as, oh well, essentially you're you're giving some kind of excuse to poor people. 
because that's how the Marxist arguments work, right? It's sort of the poor can do nothing wrong. It's the rich, and and which is a total misunderstanding mis- of, of Marxism for me. Um, and also not what I was trying to say at that point. My, my point was simply that there's clearly some kind of disenfranchisement going on in British society right now. Um, and, and we have no idea what, what's really prompting it. Um, it could be this feeling of being left behind by the country, you know, this, this feeling that some people are getting a good deal out of things and others aren't, but that there's any sort of, there's any number of reasons why, why people might be feeling disenfranchised. And I guess that brings us back to the Marcelo Bielsa quote, um, about, about this idea that, you know, essentially the, the, this guy could have some shit going on in his life that we don't know about. And that that's that. And this, it makes very little sense to, to sort of speculate on that kind of issue because where's it going to get you? You're not going to be able to say anything meaningful. Um, but yeah, that said, I, I, you know, Bielsa's response didn't surprise me at all as someone who's listened to everything that Marcelo Bielsa has said in the press box this, this season, uh, precisely because he's, you know, he's a sort of old school Marxist himself. He comes from a, um, from a family that is that that was uh, embroiled in the in the the Peronist um, up, upheavals in in Argentina and 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 so a lot of his takes just sort of tend to be like if you can imagine your dad growing up in a country that was left <laughs> left wing and then stopped becoming quite so left wing that sort of take and that, that's not to be dismissive of, of his politics at all but he does tend to sort of have that broad uh, picture. Um, leftist view of of the world where he'll be like well clearly the issue here is underlying underlying material conditions um so it didn't surprise me that that he'd said that but it it also sort of felt like a little bit of a throwaway comment on his part because i think if you were to ask him about any sort of uh political uh event of of that sort of nature that would be his sort of stock go-to um uh response so sorry i waffled a little bit there but hopefully i answered the original question yeah, you've been inv- invited on this podcast to waffle away to your heart's content. That's oh, what it's here for. <laughs> oh, God, what have I started? <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, f- I think I find myself agreeing with Bielsa. And I find myself agreeing with a lot of people in football who who are a bit more, I wouldn't say laid back. They do find it concerning. But, you know, Pep Guardiola himself has said, you punish the supporter. These, you know, this isn't a widespread epidemic yet. You know, we don't have enough evidence to kind of crack down and punish Birmingham City and destroy any hope, you know, of joining their season or, you know, punish football itself. Because, look, another point I wanted to go on to is there is a, a constant argument brought up that this stuff doesn't happen in other sports. And, I mean, you don't see it that much in golf, do you? I think at the horse race, you do. You know, Cheltenham Festival, it does kick off sometimes on the trains. And there's loads of, you know, lads in suits battering each other. But, you know, rugby, cricket, golf, um, even, you know, you look at American football and uh, most games it's not kicking off. Um, so why is it why is it English football specifically um, in the Western world? Yeah, and, uh, you know, I think that's a good question to ask. And again, this comes back to what I was saying before about the, the England um, the England match where, where there was people singing Fuck the Pope and, I, I sort of had, I guess, a, a bit of an argument with someone on Twitter um, about about what was going on here, and he'd got this sort of end of the stick that I was saying, well, you know, we need to think of we need to think of sort of reasons why we can excuse people for making these sorts of arguments. And his 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 argument was, well, these, these people aren't poor; these this is nothing to do with economics. And again, I, I said that wasn't necessarily my my what wasn't my approach, um, but. That's the question. Then the question is: Well, what is it that's impelling a group of people who are who are no longer 
economically disadvantaged to adopt that sort of uh, I, guess, I don't want to say hooliganism because it's not that but there's there's a certain tradition of what is expected of football fans um, and we live in an age where we like to think that we are progressive and liberal and it's good to be progressive and liberal don't get me wrong but the the, the sort of underlying ideas that that gives us is that um, we can just sort of start afresh with a with a clean slate we can come to something like football support and be like well we know that all of this stuff in the 70s and 80s was wrong we're just going to wipe it clean we can start again we can do football supporting the right way in the progressive liberal way which is again a great sentiment but it's also naive because that's not how things work we how whether we like it or not we live in in um in histories in which we attempt to create meaning and in which meaning is impinged upon us from from the sort of uh, context we find ourselves in and so i think the the better question to ask about these sorts of things is well let's talk about traditions let's talk about traditions of football supporting when you go to villa when you go to i'm a leeds fan when i go to leeds there are traditions of, of supporting that are nothing like uh, another club that you'll go to and you end up thinking uh, a lot of the time or falling into ways of thought that um, there is only one way to support football clubs. And that is the one that I've experienced, right? And this is probably the result of, of well, probably one of the, one of the uh, prompting um, aspects of tribalism in football in the first place. But when I went along to uh, a football club, when I went along to Leeds first, I didn't know how to support Leeds, right? And it's a, a process that you go through and, and certain things that you learn, how to be a supporter and and you're sort of through time you you sort of get inducted into this tradition of supporting a club so there'll be traditions of supporting villa that i don't know anything about if i were to go to the um uh, onto the onto the terraces of Villa Park, I wouldn't be able to join in with the songs, for example. I wouldn't be able to understand the sort of in jokes that the supporters have. I wouldn't be able to understand the 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 sort of arguments that people have on the terraces because there's so much background. Um, and I don't want to say baggage. There's there's so much background um, noise that that, that out, out of which these these sorts of ideas come. Um, that the and I think what we need to start understanding when we come to these issues of of the way that fans behave is well, what sort of role are these traditions playing? Um, what sort of things are clubs doing to make sure that these traditions aren't problematic? Like we know that we know that things like uh, racism are wrong. We know things that like hooliganism are wrong. We know things like homophobia are wrong. We know things that, like mis- misogyny are wrong. But when you are in a context in which those things have become normalized through years and years and years of, of, of development of, of, of a tradition, then you need to be very careful about the way that you approach uh, these traditions of, of fan support and you need to sort of unpack them. And, and, and for me, that's the responsibility of clubs and that's the responsibilities of supporters groups to make sure that they are, and I don't want to say policing because I don't think that's what it is, but that there is a conversation that is stepping back from that tradition of support and saying, you know what, when we do this, it's wrong. It's problematic on, for for this reason, or and and it happens both ways. One of the great traditions that I've seen starting up in clubs around the country is is donating to food banks on the morning of games. That that is a fantastic uh, tradition that has emerged um, in, into certain clubs' uh, ways of ways of supporting. And I think that's again that's another way that. Um, that that, tra- that that traditions of support can be developed. It doesn't. It doesn't always have to be a bad thing. It doesn't always have to be saying, "Well, this thing that we did in the past was bad." It will involve that, but there are other things we can think. Well, how how can we develop our support in the twenty first century so that it is um, it is more inclusive, it is more um, outward facing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, I think that's that's what I would I would want to say um, in answer to the question that you asked. That I've now completely forgotten what it was. Um, 
but it, it 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 is about that as well you know it's about so so you were talking about different sports right and i think again you know the arguments that you have about things like rugby when people say oh you'd never see that in rugby and you're like well of course you would never see that in rugby because rugby developed out of that context in which certain uh, things were and weren't issues to the the supporters like rugby particularly in the south has been um generally speaking a, a, a sport that's followed by people who relatively well off football started off as being that kind of thing but it very quickly became co-opted by by the working classes in the north and in scotland um and so those traditions reflect that as well so again i whenever people talk about things like oh well you wouldn't see that in rugby or you wouldn't see that in golf like you say all across and you kind of think well you wouldn't because these these sports emerged out of context that where these weren't governing issues and football has had its own governing issues and a lot of those came from from that the fact that it was a a working class sport so i think that's how i would want to go around answering those questions you know it's not it's not that all humans are the same and you suddenly put them together and, and and make them follow different sports and then football always just tends towards people who are terrible people it's not it's not that's not the issue the issue is is that there was this history and and it was there and we have to think about those histories and how we we carry them on how we modify them and how we make them better i think it's interesting and this i mean this is very much going back on ourselves but it's very very interesting to see the kind of pundits who've come out and a lot of them are the ones who are constantly you know attacked you know, I know it's no other term to describe it. Really, they are quite attacked by um, certain corners of football Twitter, especially the anon accounts, who can you know hide behind uh, the mask of a player and attack criticism, attack journalism, attack analysis. Um, you see the same kind of faces, such so Jay Comfrey, um, Barney Rone, you know, all those types of players who, well, not players, sorry, all those types of pundits who kind of want to almost caress and protect football, and they use the similar type of language. Don't call him a fan don't call him a man but i think two of the main identifying factors in this attack are that a he's a man demonstrating typical masculine behavior and b that he's a football fan this is this is kind of this isn't what football fans do but it is something that could possibly happen at a football match like someone runs onto a pitch and we do see you know any regional town center every so often there's a story where someone has punched someone in the back of the head and the, the victim hasn't ever woken up from that they've hit the they've hit their head off the floor they're gone and it's a moment of madness someone has just hit someone attacked someone outside a bar for no reason and this is i wouldn't say it's common but it happens and we see on a football pitch where someone runs and lamps someone in the back of the head and if that connects we have a really serious issue on our hands where someone's been taken by surprise and in some circumstances they don't wake up Mm. from that so what do we feel in general about the it's almost discounting the fact that he's a football fan and that he's a man of that language that quote-unquote fan that mm. quote-unquote man so you, you're talking about toxic max masculinity here then this sort of yeah i guess we're going into yeah. that john now so the, <laughs> the expectation then that men behave in certain ways and that and that football sort of encourages those sorts of uh, ways i think yeah i think that's interesting and again i would want to talk about those traditions that we have in football um and this comes down this comes down to every, it falls on everyone's heads and i i guess what i would want to say at this point is that you've mentioned here you know on the one hand you've got public figures public figures who are known by everyone uh, so someone like jake Humphreys is is known he's he's well known Almost any football mm-hmm. fan would be able to name Jake Humphreys. And then on the other hand, you have these sort of faceless Twitter accounts 
uh, with with all kinds of comedic names, um, usually based on on some footballer that they like. And I just don't think there's any comparison between those two things, right? It's easy for us to say, well, you know, social media is this thing, but I think we do need to be careful that we recognize that all Twitter accounts aren't created equally. Um, and there has to be a, an extent to which we recognize that if someone says something on Twitter, we don't have to respond, respond to it. Um, when Jake Humphrey says something on Twitter, it's, it's much more meaningful than when, I don't know, Messi is my homeboy 275. <laughs> yeah. makes, makes some kind of uh, response. And I think part of the problem that I have with, a lot of this debate is that we we seem to assume that those two accounts are the same, and and that's seems to be the root of a lot of and you know so I was saying before about about Daniel Story. I think Daniel Story is a fantastic journalist. I think he's a great writer. I think he he thinks the game well for for for, for and, and does what he does well. Um, but at the same time, you know, when you when you a lot of these guys they feel the need to debate with with these non accounts that like we say, we don't even know who it is. Why bother interacting with someone who, who you don't want it is. And the, the analogy that I always use, you've probably heard me use it, is, is when I was at university that we didn't have social media. It wasn't a thing. Um, and what we did is we hung out with our mates and went to the pub and we had conversations and arguments and, and fell out over <laughs> things, but we would, the, the <laughs> things that we would talk about would be the things that we were interested in. So I would talk about the things that my friends were interested in and they would talk about the things that I was these days with social media. The analogy now is that we're going to the pub and just having conversations with people on the table next to us, um, and jumping into other people's conversations and feeling as though we have a right to engage in every conversation. I just don't think that's, that's true at all. So that would be where I would want to start with this, with this sort of thing. Yes, there are a lot of problems. Um, there are problems with 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 toxic masculinity in football. But where do the where do the where do the majority of those problems come from? When when we're talking about problematic ideals about about what it is to be a man or what it is to be a human, and we can, and and for me, a lot of those come from people in the mainstream who are pushing across ideas even if those are subtly done about about what constitutes masculinity or what constitutes proper football uh, and what constitutes being a, a human so when people talk about pace and power um in 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 football commentary those those are way more problematic um uh ideas being promulgated there than by some nobody with 200 followers on Twitter. Um, and so I think for, for me, the, the really important thing that we need to talk about when we, when we're thinking about how do we, how do we, um, respond to, to what's going on is that we have to, we have to have a balanced view about, about the way that, um, public discourse happens and the way that people's ideas are crystallized because these these twitter accounts are getting their ideas from somewhere and it yeah maybe it is from other twitter uh, accounts and maybe maybe the problem is is that twitter is a big echo chamber but i think the majority of people develop their ideas about football from the mainstream um broadly speaking they listen to what uh, commentators say they listen to what people in their fan groups who have a uh, who have a loud voice or or a, a weighty voice say and that's what we should be that's what we should be worrying about we should be worrying about these these ideas that can just slip into the discourse where people say things like well you know the pace and power narrative is really not a problem well it it is it it influences the way that people think about um uh footballers and if you want to uh, promote this idea that when we're talking about black players, they're only good because they have pace and they have power. 
then you should be not surprised in the least that, that those uh, sorts of narratives can then end up pushing uh, more sinister racist um, ideals later on in, in, in the proceedings. So um, the other thing I suppose I would say is that a lot of this, and this is sort of coming circling around. So, pr- pardon me for, for for digressing slightly, but circling around to where we started and uh, back with these pundits who are complaining about what's going on. And I think a lot of the uh, takes that are happening uh, with respect to the mainstream media over this event that happened on the pitch at St Andrews is that um, what we're seeing here is um, people, generally white middle class males, and of, of whom I include myself so this is exactly the sort of thing that should be pointed back at me um but we we tell stories about the world based on the way that the world seems to us and it seems as though a lot of the the reaction to this has been stemmed by a a group of guys who 20 years ago the world was perfect for them everything was great um they they were writing for outlets for newspapers um who were well paid they were well respected and now 20 years down the line um, we're seeing the, the potential um, the, the collapse of, of, of the newspaper as a, as a form of media. We're seeing um, this sort of liberal progressive ideals that were, you know, at the height of, uh, of new labor. Everything seemed great. You know, things could only get better. Everyone was happy. Everyone was, broadly speaking, liberal progressive. And now we've ended up in a scenario which seems as though everything's fallen to pieces. So I think a lot of these takes sort of are stemmed from, um, people writing in the mainstream media who feel as though the world that they that seemed so uh, insuperable to them twenty years ago has, has suddenly been shown up to be to be completely ephemeral. And so, when you see people writing about, um, I guess, austerity and Brexit, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, a lot of it feels to me quite nostalgic. So these people are saying, you know, this is terrible. We, we, we there's a negativity to it all, and it's precisely that. It's because the world that that seems so hospitable to them has suddenly started to become alienating as well so i would throw that in there just because i think you should always have that as a as a sort of pinch of salt when you're reading the media that despite the fact that their their narratives are compelling and i think they are um you also have to realize that whenever we write these sorts of pieces within the media and again i say that for myself we're writing them from a position where we are biased towards ourselves as it were uh, yeah, it's a really deep discussion. I think we can, you know, we could talk about this for hours. To be honest, um, I think I do. My first initial thought when I re- I read most of kind of these pieces by middle class white journalists who have kind of, you know, almost taken football under their wing, almost like an adopted child, and kind of just you know, very protected up, protective over it. And my initial instinct was to agree. You see, football's a turning point. We're, we we've gone back to the dark ages and. A part of me does agree in a sense that we haven't seen someone run on a pitch and properly attack a player like that for a while. I think last time maybe it was Chris Kirkland, um, and that was a fair bit ago. And then before that, I'm not sure. And a lot of the reactions, you know, especially from, you know, you see Gary Neville come out and say, um, points deduction, ban, you know, half the crowd, close half the stand. Where do you think um, the line is drawn as a final point between a fair reaction and an overreaction um, to this this Jack Grealish attack? I know it's a bit of a, a loaded question there. Yeah, so I found the quote that I talked about before about a guy, the the, the lawyer, uh, who said that the, the law works essentially when it comes to this. This is a guy called Jeff Pearson, who's a senior lecturer in criminal law at Manchester University, and he works on he's worked on football crowds, he's worked on hooliganisms, and policing of sports events as well um, and his response was 
regarding pitch invasions, no, we aren't going back to the dark days of football hooliganism. Yes, punishments for perpetrators are sufficient. Pitch encroachment is a criminal offence. Assault is a criminal offence. And FBOs have a punitive effect. Should clubs be punished? Well, it depends whether you think that they are failing in their duty to protect players and whether punishment would encourage better protection. There is little, maybe no evidence that club punishments influence the behaviour of individual fans. Um, and I, that I, that would be my position. You know, I, I would defer to, to this gentleman who's uh, who's teaching criminal law at Manchester University. But I think that's you know that's the that's why we need what we need to ask ourselves. I think, you think you're right in asking that question, um, but I think when it comes to things like points deduction and taking hard lines, that there's so often very little evidence that those things really work. And and again, you know, I think it, it comes down to what I was saying before is the club needs to get together with supporter groups and say, what do we think has impelled this behavior? Do we think that there is, do you think, do we think that there are unhelpful narratives and traditions that are being encouraged by our supporters groups uh, that, that lead us to, to celebrate these sorts of events so that we can clap this individual off the pitch when he does something like that. How do you think that we go about responding to that? And I think that would be a far more, helpful direction to take that that sort of response um so tell the clubs to meet with the supporters groups tell do some do some basic detective work and work out what sort of group this guy was in who is he who is there is there pockets of fans who have problematic ideals and and work through it um and again that comes back to what i was saying before is but we we sort of assume that because a fan has run on the pitch at, at birmingham city that a fan could run on the pitch at crew alexandra or a fan could run on the pitch at hartlepool and and i think that you've got to realize that you know yes that's a possibility maybe it will happen maybe those fans will be impelled to do that but the fact of the matter is is that someone did run on the pitch at birmingham city and in order to to ask questions about what happened there we need to be aware of the fact that that is a very localized it will be a very localized problem it could be caused by something that wouldn't impinge upon anyone in in hartlepool there could be uh, a group of fans or a group of mess, uh, guys on a forum or message board or a group of guys who meet in the same pub for all we know it could be i guess a supporters gang um those we've seen um those those those, those sorts of things going on as well um so I think my, my response would be that, you know, it's easy to fall into big picture stuff and say, well, throw punishment and then it will stop everyone because, because, um, you know, if, if one fan influences the, the, the whole direction of a club, then it will make their other, other fans set up and wait, but that's not how football supporting works. You know, we've talked about disenfranchisement. If someone's disenfranchised, throwing a, a punishment like that at them is only going to encourage them to, to feel more disenfranchised. So, I think it, it requires some kind of ple- clever policing on the form of, and not, again, I don't like the word policing, but I mean, I mean it in the sort of small P-ist sense of the word. Um, yeah. It needs to be, it needs to be clubs thinking carefully, right? We have a responsibility for the, these traditions of fandom that we have at our club. We should have a good, re- we should have a good relationship with this, the main supporters clubs. We should have a knowledge of what's going on at the level of uh, these supporters clubs. We should have a, a liaison officer who works with them, who's, who is tr- trawling, spending their day trawling the, the forums, seeing what's going on um, and, and having their ear to the ground with, with respect to these, these clubs. And if we did uh, these supporters, and if we did that, I think we would see much fewer of these problems. Um, and again, you get that sort of community aspect, which I think is useful for anyone um, who's facing issues of disenfranchisement. So it seems like a win-win scenario to me. I think it's um, the positives that can come from this 
I think, and maybe a final note on this point. I did want to speak to you about one more thing before we uh, we close off a more positive thing. Um, but in terms of this specific aspect, the attack on Jack Grealish, one of the positive things that I want to see come from it is, and I don't, again, I don't like using the term policing because I think I fall into the same political bracket as you. Mm. But um, I think fan bases policing themselves and um, affording positive action and actually cleaning their houses in that type of sense where we've seen actions um, in the Birmingham City fan base, for example, just, you know, I don't want to hammer on them too much on this podcast because it's already an Aston Villa based podcast. So I don't want to really rail on the blue noses, but um, there have been, you know, quite bad tweets circulating about Jack Grealish for a while, fostering, you know, almost a very hateful attitude towards a player who probably played against Birmingham twice. Um, but when they started coming out, so do I feel like, what we need to see here is fans actually calling out this type of behavior, actually actioning some action from the club or the social media pl- platform. So de platform them, de platform them, and the clubs can offer a punishment like they have done today. But these these behaviors have been around for ages, and maybe it's just up to us as fan bases to kind of step up and say, "Hang on, we." There's work for us to do. We have to call out racist behaviour when it happens. We have to, you know, there's a line for banter in football that, you know, that's always going to be there. But when it turns to hateful attitudes, even if it is with a cross-city rival, where we have to find the line and make sure nothing crosses it, like a a red line was crossed Mm. yesterday, unfortunately, I think maybe we don't have to allow the police, stewards... And even clubs to do our job for us, maybe we can, you know, I have a, a big voice in the Villa fan base and I'd like mm-hmm. to think if Villa fans were to recreate the actions where they mocked, you know, the death of Alio Cisse's family when he was a Birmingham player 15, 18 years ago, that I'd be able to be in a position to call that out and hopefully afford some positive action there. I feel like this may be, if it's not a flashpoint for further football violence happening, maybe it's a flashpoint for us as fan groups or football fans to kind of group up and be able not to act as vigilantes at all, but to be able to, you know, foster a really positive fan base and make football feeling feel good again. Um, a lot of attention is heaped in England on Italian 90 and how it transformed the country. That momentum has kind of completely dropped out now, I feel. And it's, it's on us and not the English national football team and not on New Order and not on Gaza to kind of make that happen. Yeah, and no, I agree with everything you've said there. And, you know, I think your your voice is way more powerful than, than mine in this regard because I've always been a, a sort of football fan in exile because I moved away from Leeds when I was very young. So, yeah, I would completely defer to you on this. I think you're entirely right. I think this is about thinking carefully about what responsibility fan groups have and thinking, as we've said before, you know, about how, how do you engender an environment which is positive rather than negative. You can have, we can have the sorts of emotional investment in a club and the emotional experiences that, that supporting football clubs gives you without that needing to be tied to more problematic ideas about what it means to be, like you said, male, what it means to be British, what it means to be straight what it means to be non uh yeah or what it means to be white even you know these sorts of these sorts of things always impinge into football they always um end up um bleeding into the the way that we live our lives and i think um all it's going to have to all we're going to have to see is is for clubs to approach um these sorts of issues supporter groups to approach these sorts of issues with a much more holistic view and I think interesting 
uh, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the clubs that you expect to be like that, um, the clubs where the supporters groups are progressive and they are aware of these things are much smaller clubs, whereas I think it's a lot easier to change the traditions or the traditions haven't been set yet. So you have clubs like Clapton FC, however you view them. You have clubs like Forest Green Rovers. You have clubs like Dulwich Hamlet. The reason why these clubs, I think, become co-opted so easily by um, more progressive um, forms of fandom is because they're smaller. Um, so when it comes to fans of clubs that we support, like Villa and and Leeds, it's a lot harder to do that because you have that whole back history of, of tradition that works all the way back. So I think that's a, a really good clarion call that you just gave there that, that says, you know, for us fans of clubs that are um, more, um, I, I guess, more solidified more crystallized in their forms of fandom we need to rethink those throughs and, and reform them and, and think what does it mean to be a football fan of Leeds United or what does it mean to be a football fan of Villa in the 21st century yeah well John thank you very much for coming on there is one thing I wanted to bring up with you before you go and that is that you did mention that Jack Grealish was the the best player in the championship I just wanted your take <laughs> on him from a, a neutral or well an opposition a rival in a sense, uh, perspective, why is Jack Grealish the best player in the championship? And did you mean to say that? <laughs> you got me there, you know. See, I was trying to, I was trying to use rhetoric in in the article to get people on board. But I do. Th- <laughs> that doesn't mean to say that I don't agree with what I said. Of course, um, I do think that he is. I think he's the best player in the in the in the championship. I'm surprised that he hasn't been picked up by a Premier League club yet. I think there's reasons why that's the case. And again, you guys would be better uh, to, uh, able to answer that question than I ever would. So uh, I'll leave that one to you. But for me, it's about it's about creativity um, with Jack Grealish. One of the, you know, everyone talks about the, the, the championship as a league where, that is just um, a bollock to get out of. And it really is. Um, and a lot of that comes down to the fact that um, the, the play can become stodgy. I mean, what we've seen with Leeds United this season is, is case in point. Leeds United come out of the blocks um, at a rate of knots, and we we soon found ourselves at the top of the table. We dis uh, we, we we deconstructed clubs at the beginning of the season, um, and as soon as you do that, you know you get halfway through a season, and then clubs realise, you know. Oh, well, this team is playing well, that team is playing well. What we'll do is we'll sit deep against them and, and force them to take the game to us. And it's when that sort of thing happens for clubs at the top of the table, it's very difficult for them to to break teams down without having a player like Jack Grealish, who is um, uh, just, he is creative. He does see um, space in a way that other players don't. He has the ability to find that space. Uh, he's, he's good on the ball. He's a great shot. Um, he has... I believe you youngsters call it source, which I think it helps in these in these scenarios. Um, and so I, I think, you know, Grealish is the sort of player that Leeds would be 10 points clear at the top of the table if they had him. Um, we had Samu Saez and things went wrong for us with him um, and he ended up going back to Spain. And if we'd have kept him, um, and I'm writing a piece about this at the moment, but if we'd have kept him, I suspect we would have, we'd be a lot more comfortable at the top of the table than we are Current one, we're not even at the top of the table, but um, a lot of that, a lot of the problems that we had came from the fact that we lost size, and then teams started sitting deep against us. Because if you don't sit deep against us, we can tear you to to pieces. And so, um, for me, Jack Grealish is that is that sort of holy grail of of, of championship managers, which is um, someone who who is adept at playing championship football, who can play um, when the game is stodgy, but also has that that little bit of extra that can that can change a game, that can can find space, that can move the ball into into an area and then lay a, a player in or score himself. Um, and so I do I do expect to see him 
not in the championship next year, whatever happens with Villa. I've, I mean, I've taken up far too much of your time today. It's been a very, very good discussion. I really hope um, that the listeners appreciate and that we can get it out to maybe a more mainstream audience who would like a deeper cut on the whole topic, considering how you know how viral, in that essence, it's gone. Mm. But John, I'm going to... I've already had this discussion with you. I'm going to obviously cut a bit of your newsletter with your permission and put it on the site because I think it would be good for people to see and hopefully you can get a bit more people to subscribe to that. No pressure at (laughs) all. Um, But where can people find you and this newsletter? So the best thing to do is just follow me on Twitter. So I'm uh, on Twitter at John underscore McKenzie. Now John is J-O-N because it's short for Jonathan. And McKenzie is spelled the proper way with an A. So it's M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E. you can find a link to my newsletter to this sign up and the sort of prologue to it on uh, as the pin tweet on my on my profile so that's the best place to to go for that but the the newsletter itself is is it's I, I don't really know what it is but it's it's me trying to um document my experiences of writing a book on Marcelo Bielsa um so if you are interested in in the idea of writing a book and want to see what it's like then maybe that's for you but i also do have um, a thought for the week in it each week, which is just a sort of shortish article where I talk about some, uh, I guess, contemporary issue. And so this week happened to be Jack Grealish. So um, yeah, hopefully uh, you might find things, other things of interest on there, but um, I will not be offended at all if you don't like the idea of someone being self-indulgent about the experience of writing a book. Oh, John, thank you very much uh, for coming on. Of course, we're looking forward, we're all looking forward to reading your book when it does finally come out. I know you've made progress with that but yeah thank you for coming on i'm james rush and that's john mckenzie uh, we'll be back on sunday with your regular scheduled podcaster and hopefully villa have more points and hopefully jack grealish isn't hit in the face we'll see you very soon oh. goodbye